welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is part two of a recap of our recent uh, caribou hunt in Alaska. And again, in this episode, this part two, it's more about the gear, the logistics, the nitty gritty. So we talk about optics, we talk about shelters, we talk about waders, we talk about travel. A lot of the things you need to know that we didn't cover in part one, we're going to cover in this episode. Before we dive into that, um, I failed to mention last time I totally forgot we're in a new month, which means a new giveaway. So here in October of 2019, we have a giveaway from Dark Timber Coffee Company, as well as Off Grid Food Company. So you can win a prize pack that contains items from both of those great companies. Um, Two things that stand out on that. One is Tony at Dark Timber. I've actually bugged him personally for quite a while to have a darker roast, and he now has it. So he has this new double barrel blend that's legit fantastic. And I drink that at home, but on the go, um, for in the backcountry, his coffee options can't be beat. Whether you're doing his vapor packs, which are like an instant mocha, you're doing a pour over, he has all kinds of options. Go check him out at darktimberco.com. And then um, off-grid food companies. Spencer does some fantastic meals, both entrees and snacks. His trail mix is crack like it's addicting for sure and i'm not just saying that um it's scary but my favorite thing of all of his are his predator fuel oatmeals um on this recent trip to alaska i had one every morning i've done that on so many trips his stuff is fantastic so be sure to go check out that as well with off-grid food company so again to enter to win items from both of these companies go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast just look for the giveaway link it takes like two seconds and you'll get entered all right, let's dive into this part two recap of the Alaska caribou hunt, talking logistics and gear. To kick things off, right now, we're going to talk optics first. This is the first time I've been to Alaska, and I'm not even like an optics nerd by any means, but even me, I could tell like right off the bat, there was just something so different about not only how big that country is, but how clear and like how well you could glass up there. It was pretty remarkable. Um, whether, you know, I was carrying like 10 by binos or Jason was packing a big 95 spotter. Um, it's just, it was crazy. Like the clarity up there. Um, what are your thoughts on optics in terms of, uh, what you would bring? What would you recommend for that type of hunt, Steve? Yeah, as much as you want to possibly pack. <laughs> I mean, I think, like you said, it's so it's the one area. It's definitely an area where I'd recommend the biggest scope you have take because you're going to be able to take full advantage of it. Um, it's just amazing glassing up there. I, I, yeah, I can't ever equate it to anything down here. You can see twice as far. You can pick up antler size and tines, and yeah, it's um, it's incredible. So, um, you know, theoretically on a caribou hunt, it shouldn't be a lot of necessarily like 
I mean, we were basically mule deer hunting these caribou where we're glassing them from, you know, anywhere from two miles to eight miles away and then going and figure out a stock and, and making it happen should be, you know, a pair of binos should be all you need. They should be walking right by you. Um, but for this hunt this time, I mean, um, having that big glass was a huge advantage and it's, it is just, you know, I think it's probably specific to the area, but where we were at, it's huge country. I mean, that we could never get over that that valley was two miles across because um, it looked like it's half a mile across, but it, just no trees, no perspective, just way bigger than it looks. So you'd, you'd be looking through your binos and like, oh, I should be able to pick up caribou on that when in reality it's twice as far away as you think and you need a good spine scope to, to uh, zoom in there and find them. Yeah. Because I think like anything, your, your trophy uh, goals are also going to um, dictate your optic choices, right? Like if you're just worried about spine, spotting caribou and or just seeing, hey, is there able in that group? That's one thing. Um, but if you have certain aspirations in terms of like judging quality, no brainer. You're obviously going to need better optics. So just keep that in mind. Um, you don't have to go with a big 95 spotter if you're kind of just willing to, to shoot whatever um, and you can get away with a, a, a less quality spotter for sure. I would say at least in a group, probably worth packing a spotter um, just in case you run into a hunt more like we did and less like what you might think you'd expect of caribou just migrating through. Um, it's worth having one, but binos for sure can get a lot done in that country as well. Um, that was my first hunt, 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 running um, range finding binos, which I'm still... The bow hunter in me thinks that they're not a great idea, <laughs> but um, for a hunt <laughs> like this, for this rifle hunt, they were so money. Um, so yeah, that's something new to me. I was running the SIGs, uh, like, I think they're the Kilo 3000 or range finding by now. Um, man, I can see the appeal for sure. Um, again, I'm not, they're not perfect for every scenario, but for this, they were money. Um, and then just especially pairing it with a rifle hunt. Um, them having a ballistic engine built in. So it's not only showing you yardage, but it's showing you MOA for your specific rifle, your specific load. Um, man, they're pretty, pretty fantastic for sure. So that was something new. I was pretty, uh, excited about and have been excited about, but that was the first actual hunt using them on, um, shelter. Uh, yeah, shelter, shelter is going to be a big one for sure. Um, you touched on it earlier, Steve, just to kick things off, especially for a group hunt, to have a shelter that you can all fit in. And I don't mean like cram in, but I mean fit in somewhat comfortably in case you have to spend 30 plus hours in a shelter, as we did. Um, that's just critical. Again, especially for a group hunt, like if there was the the seven of us and we had to go fit into, you know, call it four or five, six different one man and two man tents and spend 30 plus hours. It would have been such a different hunt compared to us, all seven of us being able to fit in and spend that time together in one shelter and play games and tell jokes and hang out. I mean, it literally would have changed the hunt dramatically. I think that shelter choice for sure. Yeah, that was something, you know, just, uh, I guess an experience learned a lesson from the last hunt because Lenny and I did have uh, a good 24 hour period on that one where we had to basically hang out in the tent. Um, and I knew with the big group, it was going to be absolutely critical to, for just to have a good time when you're stuck in that scenario to, to have a big tent. 
Uh, turns out finding a big tent that can handle wind is not easy. Um, basically, it came down to the Cabela's Alaskan Guide series or this Hilleberg tent that I ended up getting. Um, there wasn't a lot of choices out there. So um, I think those Cabela's Alaskan Guides, um, I don't know if they're phasing them out or what since Bass Pro Shops bought them out. But that's still – I think that's a great, great tent to pick up um, that, you know, for – for a group um they're, they're built well and handle the wind well but yeah i would definitely um you know you, you we, how that shook out where there's not a lot of places to camp right um basically the float plane dropped us off and we were like okay this is where you're camping unless we decided to pack all our gear you know a mile across the tundra to another spot um but we were really exposed to the wind you know if we had had little backpacking tents and, and backpacked up that canyon. We could have found places to camp and get out of it. But you're basically right on the edge of the lake, zero trees, zero terrain uh, to break it. So you're just taking the full brunt of it. Um, and that's where having a, a tent that's, you know, truly going to handle, you need a four-season tent that's going to handle those 40, 50-mile-an-hour winds. Um, so do your, you know, make your choices wisely. And I think, um, you know, uh, obviously Jared's TP did not fare well, had to take it down. Lenny had a go light TP. It's like an older, well, yeah, an older go light model. And it did okay. But if it was just there by itself, it wouldn't have fared very well. Um, Jason and Tyler both had big Agnes copper spurs and Jason's, we got some, I got some great video of the, literally the tent, like f- the poles folding in on itself, folding in half. Um, you know, Tyler's held up well, though. I think it was angled just at the right angle and a little bit better construction. It's a newer model. So, um, yeah, I would just very much, um, do, do your research on tents and make sure they can handle wind because you're going to see it up there. Yeah. That's one area where, you know, I want to say a high, high, high percentage of the gear that you might already have to elk hunt, deer hunt, whatever is going to apply. Um, and that's, yeah. I think what a lot of us tried to do is with the shelter, just, oh yeah, we use this, you know, in Idaho or Colorado or whatever, let's use it up there. But I would definitely be careful about doing that. Um, yeah, we had one spe- question specifically four season tent versus floor shelter, four season tent, no doubt. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the TP, um, which was a seek outside Cimarron, which is not to say anything bad about them. We've used that tent a lot it's been good we've had it in gusty windy conditions it's held up to that but like this sustained 30 plus hour 40 50 mile hour winds like destroyed it it's also an older model um i'm not sure if the newer ones have more guy outs but this one did not have enough for sure um so yeah if alaska's on the radar um yeah for sure i would go with a stronger tent than what you probably backpack with. Um, and there's backpacking tents that can do it. I mean, like the smaller Hillbergs and things like that, but, uh, yeah, definitely make a, an informed and I would say conservative decision there, meaning you're probably going to pack some more weight or size than what you maybe want to otherwise, but it's the best call. Um, clothing stuff that stood out, Steve, you mentioned waders before, um, I think again, ask your air service to get a vibe for what they use recommend. Um, ideally all we were using waders for was to cross, um, to cross streams, rivers and to board and deplane on the float plane. There are parts of Alaska where you, you might be using waders almost nonstop, you know, just based off conditions or what have you, but waders are nice. Um, 
you know, we had a different approaches. Both you and Lenny had Neos River Truckers, which unfortunately they don't make anymore. They're like basically an overboot hip waiter, so you can put them right over everything you're wearing. Those work fantastic. You guys were by far the fastest to get waders on and off with crossings. Um, I had hip boots with built-in uh, hip waders with built-in boots, so I had to take my boots and gaiters and everything off and put those on, and then redo the whole process. They worked great. They were cheap. They were light. Um, they were just like field and stream versions from Dick's or something. They're like literally thirty bucks. Or no, they were frog togs. I think. Super cheap frog togs. They worked because all I was doing was crossing streams, not the fastest. Um, we had some guys who were running like full um, chest waders. Um, they certainly worked. Uh, we actually heard, uh, got an email from a guy who said he uses stocking foot chest waders and just wears his stocking foot right within his boots. Obviously, you might have to make some sizing considerations there. Um, but yeah, there's all kinds of options and thoughts. And Steve, after seeing all of us and we almost all had a little bit different approaches i it just kind of left me head scratching a little bit on i don't know that the perfect solution exists and it made me want to think about that more yeah the waiter scene's tough man it's um <laughs> there's so much water up there it is everywhere it's hard to imagine um and uh yeah it's it's there's not an easy solution i think you just need to be again this is where a good Air service comes in to play and also getting the list and talking to hunters that have been out in the field. Uh, but I also think that it's really true and that it could just be entirely situational. I mean, you could be dropped off at one spot and barely ever need them to cross you know, one little stream. And then you could be dropped off three miles away and be wearing them almost nonstop. So, um, yeah, it's a tough call. Those, those Neos river trackers that we have, they don't make those anymore. I think it was like, some big corporation like Honeywell or something that made them. Um, and those things were awesome. Uh, they, they, we've had them since the moose hunt. Um, so yeah, I, I think your frog togs isn't a bad solution. It's just, you know, the, just stopping, taking off your boots, sliding those on, putting on some, I think, did you just wear your Crocs over that to cross? M- mine had a, like a lightweight boot firm boot oh, built into it. Yeah. Gotcha. So you, yeah. So then slip those on, cross the stream, take them off, put your boots back on. It's just kind of time consuming and not a big deal when you're just um, just hunting, right? Like, but when you're actually trying to make a stock and cross the stream real quick, that definitely um, eats up some time and, and could cost you something. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, you just need to find out how often you're going to be using them uh, from the air service, like worst case scenario, and then buy your make your buying decision based off of that you know your your 30 dollar frog tog ones could work great if it's just a few uses here and there if it's our moose hunt where you're going to need to be in them non-stop then you know, obviously you want to invest in something a little bit more quality right along with waders um even as we weren't crossing streams we weren't uh in a complete swamp like the moose hunt but there was a lot of water that we went through and so gators were really important um knee-high gators so that could be uh, I was running like the first light. I want to say they're called the Brambler Gators, maybe. They're high gators um, or something, you know, like a classic OR crocodile, that type of thing. Um, but definitely gators were critical um, on this because without that, you'd, you'd either be spending a bunch of time in your waders or you'd just be wet. But um, waterproof boots and gators uh, were critical. Again, not necessarily for the stream crossings, but just there's there's water everywhere up there. Um, so that was super important. And then boots. Um, 
you know, again, the, the always conversation is always everybody's foot's different, yada, 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 but definitely um, a waterproof pair of boots was money. Um, and then ha- even in that, having two pairs of boots, I would wholeheartedly recommend um, just being able to, if, if something does get wet, you always have that backup. Um, and even just sometimes changing up the, like I was running Krispies and Solomon's and so changing up the stiffness and all that was actually kind of nice to go back and forth. Um, or, you know, if you're packing out a bowl and you're tired and cranky and decide to go thigh deep through a river without waders, just cause you don't <laughs> want to take your pack or boots off. And like I did having dry boots was nice. Um, so yeah, waterproof boots, gaiters was, uh, was really important as well beyond, um, yeah, beyond the waders. Any other, any other clothing stuff? I know we mentioned on the previous podcast, the puffy pants were really nice. Um, and they were, uh, both for in camp as well as if you're spending time glassing, those were really nice. Obviously you're going to want to make sure you have quality rain gear as well. There's a great chance of spending a decent amount of time in rain gear, although we didn't. We got lucky in that regard. I think we had double wind uh, and instead of wind and rain. Um, decent gloves, and that doesn't have to be anything uh, special, but just like some warm wool gloves, that type of thing. Any other clothing stuff? I think a lot of it, honestly, is just a layering strategy that you're going to use on a on a mountain hunt anyway, and then just adding the, the waders and maybe some additional insulation on top of that. Anything else, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I would. Um, it's it's always hard for me to pack for Alaska because my natural instinct, I just want to be really simple, really lightweight, as few pieces as possible. Um, but man, Alaska can throw a lot of crap at you. So I like, I would absolutely treat even if you're going, you know, in early September, I would treat Alaska like you're backpacking uh, Idaho in late November. Like just be prepared for just about any type of weather. So really good rain gear, really good insulation. Um, you know, two pairs of boots, like you said, just be prepared for weather, getting wet, getting cold. Um, and then you, you're going to be safe. Cause I, we, you know, I was sitting there looking at the weather forecast, um, the night before we left and I was packing up my stuff and I took a bunch of insulation layers out, uh, my puffy pants, uh, some gloves, some long johns. Um, and man, I sure regretted it. Cause even though the temps were, uh, not necessarily super cold the, with the wind chill. I, I, we had to be been below zero with the wind chill there a couple of days. Um, and it was cold. Like it was really, really freaking cold. So, um, just be planned and prepared for that. And hopefully it's, um, I guess definitely not an area I would skimp, right? Like if you don't yeah. have good rain gear and it rains for 48 hours on you again, it goes, you know, you go back to, um, doing you know looking at your five grand for this hunt if you start planning a couple of years in advance and get a really good set of rain gear now um kind of absorb some of that cost because i mean yeah you could easily go spend three four hundred dollars on rain gear and pants um so um yeah just be planning prepared for really anything yeah yeah just to hit some other items um that came up for me for this hunt that i would say are uh not typical for most hunts. Again, if we're kind of keeping in the conversation of, you know, a deer elk hunt, that type of thing. Um, just thinking through some things we already mentioned some like a second pair of boots. I'm normally never pecking that, but maybe have a pair in a truck, but other things that came to mind, having a chair, a lightweight chair, like a Helinox type chair, there's plenty of, um, knockoffs on Amazon these days. 
Um, that was critical for around camp. Again, going back to the discussion of sitting around a tent for 30 plus hours as we did, we all had those small lightweight chairs and that was certainly better than sitting on the ground. Um, a cot, um, to go with your sleep system. Again, a simple Amazon knockoff is pretty much what most of us used really lightweight cot, but you just don't necessarily know what type of ground you're going to be dealing with and if it's going to be wet or dry or flat or bumpy or what have you. Um, so a cot was certainly something that was an addition. Um, a saw, uh, we were carrying a saw both, uh, for caribou specifically in the unit that we were in. We mentioned previously, everything had to stay bone on that included ribs. Um, so we had to take ribs out whole, um, with bone. So a saw was super helpful for that. Obviously can serve other purposes there. Um, let's see cooking um steve you had a slick little setup um you know beyond just a jet boil which plenty of us had but you you know you might want to look at an actual stove something that you could cook with a pan something you can simmer with that type of thing uh what was the one that you used steve yeah it was an msr stove and pot um and yeah that was uh you know, again, based on experience that like we have all this awesome caribou meat and getting a fire up there. Uh, we never had one fire cause we had no wood. I mean, we could have packed some from the stream, but it'd been like a mile hike with a pack wood back to camp. So, um, we had no fire. Um, Linnea had a pretty similar situation on the first hunt. So I knew having a stove to cook up real food, especially cook up uh, backstraps and tenderloins, which we did with the caribou. So I think we just had some olive oil and spice and, I bought some a uh, couple onions in town um, before we left Kotzebu, and that was yeah, absolutely awesome. That was uh, some pretty delicious snacks we had there cooking those up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you might want to have cooking system beyond just a, a jet boil type system. Um, what else? Oh, just stuff like you guys had cribbage. I learned how to play cribbage, but literally having a deck of cards, a book, you know, anything for downtime, whether that's in the field or just travel delays getting in or out of the field. I never think of that stuff on a backpack hunt, but that's, uh, it could be a very much a time saver and an enjoyment factor on a trip like this is just having cards or little games or books, things like that. Um, we packed fishing gear. We never used it. We hope to, to use it more. I think that it's worth considering for this type of trip, though. Uh, camp shoes like Crocs or something like the like, whether you're using that with, you know, stocking foot waders for stream crossings, but literally just to wear on camp, get out of your boots. That's nice. Um, what else, Steve, comes to mind in terms of things you don't necessarily normally hunt with or backpack hunt with, but that you bring in on this trip? Uh, yeah, I think you kind of covered most of it. Um, having a shovel, uh, <laughs> yeah. this came, uh, for, uh, going to the bathroom. Um, we did not have a shovel, so we were using trekking poles and sticks to dig little holes. Um, especially at this spot, you know, it's kind of gross, but I think we we're probably the fourth or fifth camp in and out of there over the last month. Um, and there was only one decent area to go to the bathroom. So, um, yeah, having a shovel is kind of nice to be able to dig. Dig a hole and go go there. Um, one of my notes with relative to the wind, um, my Hilberg just had like regular backpacking tent stakes, and we talked about having like full on twelve inch metal stakes with a little hatchet or something to pound those into the ground. That would have been a huge tool because we we got lucky in that we had um, a bunch of brush around us that we were able to tie off guy lines to. Uh, we ended up no joke probably had 
20 guy lines coming off the wind side of that Hilleberg tent yeah, when that wind seriously. was that strong. Um, so that's one note I had down. And then um, the other one, the random thing uh, kind of uh, on meet there at camp was talk to the air service. This is a question for the air service and for the people of, maybe you can get a hold of people who've hunted it before is, did they have a problem with bears getting into the meet? Um, we were, you know, we spent three days there in Kotzebue waiting to get out and all the hunters that were coming out, we were talking to and almost, I'd say two thirds, three quarters of the hunters were losing meat because of grizzly bears. So they'd storm, you know, 50, hundred yards away from their tents and the bears would come in the middle of the night and take away the meat, um, which would just be heartbreaking to me. Uh, you know, you, it's one of the huge reasons to, to do that hunt is come home with some delicious caribou meat. So, um, we came up with, you know, we, we had put tarps, kind of over the meat um and we kind of thought that you know they were somewhat loose in some spots so they were flapping in the wind constantly and that may have been a distraction for the bears to keep them out and another idea that i think we threw out there in the middle of the night was it'd be super handy to have little bells to tie to the meat and i don't know if this is totally hypothetical we don't know if it'd work or not but at least if a bear was getting into it in the middle of the night wake you up and you'd know uh your meat just wouldn't be drug off but tying bells to to the meat, um, so it'd start jingling if they were getting moved. Uh, anyways, it's definitely a question to ask. I, I think it's um, used to not be a problem for uh, the search service we use, but every year their bears are getting a little bit more uh, brave and uh, coming in there and stealing meat. And um, so, be a, maybe we should get Billy Moles back on and ask him what they do. I know he had a pretty specific um, thing for how to get a bear out of camp, but I wonder if they do anything special to try to prevent them from stealing meat. Yeah, I remember him talking about, you know, if you hear one and you're in the tent and it's getting into your meat, like, don't say a word, don't do anything, don't yell, don't use a handgun, grab your rifle, fire a warning shot straight at it. Um, that was one of his tactics for hopefully scaring one off as one was in camp. And I think, Steve, you hallucinated one night and got ready to do such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I did, actually. Uh, I'm so convinced something came in, but everyone else thinks I'm crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of other stuff that was different. Um, none of us, well, I don't want to say none of us, some of us filtered water some of the time, but plenty of us didn't filter one drop, including myself. So, um, we're close to that couple week mark post trip of Giardia setting in. So I think I'm safe. We'll see. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a question to ask again, obviously not a bad thing to, to be safe and, and to filter, um, I normally filter everything here in the lower 48, but I will say it was, it was so nice to be able to just grab a Nalgene, dip it in a stream and do nothing else. That was, that was super nice. Um, yeah, so. they, um, this is the air service swore up and swore up and down. They haven't filtered anything up there for 30 years and no one's ever gotten sick that GRD doesn't exist. Um, so we took the word for it and yeah, so far so good. Two trips in and haven't got GRD. So, um, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know when that gonna... changes. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, just to hit on food. I mean, we kind of covered it with a cook kit, but with a trip like this, um, you don't have to stick to just, you know, your backpacking, backpacking, dehydrated, freeze dried stuff. Um, get creative. Like, you know, some of the things that I saw guys do that I appreciated because I did pretty much stick to backpacking type food, partially because I'm lazy and just am used to it. Um, but things that traveled well, like Lenny was 
uh, getting out can not Pringles, but basically Pringles, you know, like cans of chips that wouldn't get crushed and travel. That was super nice. Um, Jason went all out and had homemade chocolate chip cookies, homemade banana bread, just in free, uh, in vacuum pack. Um, that was that badass, was, by the way. Yeah, that was money. That, like that yeah. was that literally a homemade chocolate chip cookie on day four, whatever that was, was unbelievable. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was speaking to the banana bread where oh, basically yeah. took it out of the oven, let it cool just a little bit, and then vacuum sealed it, and it just sucked that thing down into this little brick. It was and crazy man, that was, dense. That was some good eating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so get creative with food. Um, you know, you're you're basically up against just your weight limit of what you can fly with according to your air service. Um, and beyond that, like you can get away with bigger packages or Steve, what you mentioned earlier about onions. And so there's all kinds of possibilities there. So just don't get stuck in the got to have freeze dried food and bars for a week. Cause that's not the case on a trip like this. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, bears, you, you kind of mentioned Steve with the meats. Um, and then I don't, we didn't have in terms of bear protection, nobody had bear spray on this trip quite a few of us had handguns um and then quite a few of us obviously had rifles but nobody had spray um and i would just say on that um as steve you mentioned to me like as we were going into the field like if a bear comes at me i'm waiting until it's like three feet away to shoot it because like be realistic with your skills and I don't want to say your skills, but ideally like practice, you know, um, drawing from whatever situation you're set up at. So don't just like stand on a range and shoot a few rounds with your pistol and be good to go. But you know, whether it's mounted to your pack, whether it's mounted to a chest harness, like practice from those situations, practice rapid fire, see what your capabilities are. Because in all honestly, Steve, like I know you're half joking and half serious, but I think you're a hundred percent correct that you were much better off waiting till a bear was on top of you essentially to shoot it than you were trying to shoot a charging bear with your handgun at call it 15 yards, that type of thing. So be realistic with that. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, I got that new SIG 9mm and went out and shot it uh, and I have zero pistol experience. No, you know, no one's ever taught me how to shoot it or anything. I just grabbed it and, and I was trying to hit a rapid fire, a target at man, maybe 15 feet, five yards. And I think three out of 10 bullets hit the, you know, kind of 10 by 10 area that I was aiming at. So it was like a very, like under the adrenaline of a grizzly bear attacking. I just knew like, yeah, I was, yeah, there was no half joking about it. It was like, if a bear's coming at me, I'm going to have to do everything possible to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait until that thing is right on you. Cause if I unloaded that whole clip when they were 15 yards away, I may not freaking hit the thing. So, um, something I definitely need to go and do is, have someone teach me how to shoot a freaking handgun. Cool. Just to wrap up, um, one of the questions we got was, knowing what you know now, what would you change? Um, anything come to mind, Steve? You've done it twice now. So I think you've know you you've gone through that process with your first trip, and obviously we've talked about some of the yeah. things you've done for the second trip. But does anything else come to mind to answer that question? The big one, and I, I knew this already, but it's still hard, is just expect delays expect bad weather expect to get frustrated have legitimate plans for changing flights i would um i had thought about it but getting my wife um all my flight confirmation codes things like that because she you know i was sitting there out in the field trying to on my phone because we were supposed to get picked up on monday um at like one o'clock they told us no we're not going to make it to you so 
here we are, we've got hotel reservations and flights, you know, hotel for that night and flights for the next day. And you're out in the field with nothing but an inReach, um, trying to get all that rebooked and rescheduled and, and cancel the hotel reservation. So it's not super easy to do. I would definitely have that pre-planned out. You know, I, I, I knew it going in, I didn't take care of it. I should have. So again, have, have somebody designated to change flights for you. Um, if needed, be you able know, buy the insurance. We still, still got to go figure out how the heck to do that, uh, to file the claim. Um, and then, um, I would also, we talked about, um, even just planning for delays. So say you're supposed to get out of the field on a Monday and theoretically, uh, Tuesday you'd buy your flight home. I'd, I'd almost just buy it for Wednesday um, and then if you do get out on Monday, try to reschedule for Tuesday, but it was such a, you know, planning, having things go according to plan, uh, I think probably doesn't happen that often in Alaska, uh, maybe 50, 50 shot. So plan on, you know, delays and stuff like that. And then if you, you know, if you don't get them great, but if you do, you're, you're ready for it. And then at the same time, uh, I have, like just add two days to your trip. If you've got a wife and kids at home, tell your wife that you're coming home two days later than you're supposed to. Um, Cause I think when you get to that deadline, they're ready for you to get home. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Nope, sorry. I'm stuck out here for another day or two. Um, that's a lot harder to take than just planning and preparing for that right from the beginning. Yeah. The, the flight logistics is a big one. Um, I, I actually talked with uh, somebody afterwards and they were saying, they had a similar experience on a trip to Alaska this year. And he's like, when I go next time, I'm just booking a flight up there. And then I'm booking mm. my flight home whenever I realize I can make it home, essentially. Like, he wasn't even booking yeah. round trip. He was just like, I'll just pay for a flight home, whatever day that is. And, yeah, it might be like a last minute, you know, book it for the next day type thing. But um, that's an interesting strategy, too. It would be interesting to see. Obviously, that's going to have a variable cost. So, to know whether that's going to be more cost effective or not, who knows, yeah. versus rebooking. Um, you could get hosed maybe, but if you have the, the flexibility, I mean, there's, there's some value there. Um, I would say just in terms of what would I change? I don't, I don't know that I'd change much other than some of the things we've already discussed in this episode, but just the thing that was reinforced to me above all this was for this type of trip, manage your mindset, your expectations and be very cognizant of who you take this type of trip with. Um, yeah, it could it just it could it could get ugly. <laughs> you know, when you face delays, you face crappy weather. You're with somebody who's not like in the mindset to handle that, or yeah, it could just get ugly. I'll say it that way. And it did it. Like it was even in the delays, it was we were stuck in a tent for thirty plus hours. Nobody wants that, but we still made the best of it. We all had fun. We didn't see nearly as many caribou as we expected. We made the best of it. We all had fun. So, I mean, there's just, there's so much to that in terms of who you do it with and what's your mindset going into it, what's their mindset going into it. Cause that's, uh, yeah, it's just one of those situations where things won't go your way and then what? And that's, uh, that's really important because that's definitely part of a trip like this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a wrap, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that this has been helpful. If you are thinking about doing an Alaska adventure one day, again, not the cheapest thing in the world, not the easiest thing in the world, um, but coming off of my first trip, man, it's an experience that I think as a hunter, 
even if it's a one-time thing, it's worth looking into, it's worth saving up for, it's worth doing. Uh, it's a pretty special place and a pretty special experience. So hope you've enjoyed these episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're not yet subscribed, hit that subscribe button in your podcast app to reach us directly, to enter giveaways, to learn more. Go to xomountaingear.com forward slash podcast.